Well, the text, the text for this morning that we're looking at is uh, the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. So let me go ahead and read that text to us so we have the, the, the full story. And, and then we'll come and think about this king, the king like no other. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them, on, on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, as we come to Palm Sunday, we know that there is a mounting expectation. The disciples are starting to feel as if something is right here on the horizon. I think they're feeling the energy. The energy in Jerusalem even is starting to mount up. Jesus knows he's walking into a hotbed of, of, uh, of political rebellion against God anyway. So there are all sorts of mounting expectations. And even the disciples themselves, it's interesting that as this is told as a prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, it's clearly a passage that they were familiar with. Right. They, they knew this was a messianic prophecy. But I wonder if they had ears to hear the prophecy itself. It's like sometimes, again, just like I'm saying about reading Isaiah 53, we can read these passages and they become white noise to us. I mean, how many times had the disciples heard or read Zechariah 9 9? And they just simply hear it as the coming of their king. And they're looking forward to that with great anticipation. And we know that even Peter believes that Jesus is this coming one. So he's right on that. And yet, in the very text itself, it says, your king comes lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt. Right? There's, some, there's, there's a little twist in the text that seems to be passing over. The, the disciples and those around as they, as they think about Jesus and what he's doing. So I want us to think this morning about these expectations that they're coming into the kingdom with. We, we thought for our, our word of exhortation this morning of that passage regarding Peter. And now I want to draw the application to us as we see Jesus enter Jerusalem. I entitled this sermon, A King Like No Other. This is a theme that I've picked up over the years many times as we thought about Good Friday and thought about what kind of king it is? What does Jesus teach us about headship? What does Jesus teach us about authority? What kind of kingdom is this when the king himself is beaten beyond recognition? When the king himself completely empties himself and, and accepts the judgment of the world uh, upon him? Um, wow, what does that mean? And in such the judgment of God. But what does that mean for us? 
What does it mean for us who claim to be citizens of this kingdom? That's what we need to wrestle with a little bit today. So we have these expectations. The disciples clearly have it and they're mounting. But clearly there's an issue of blindness here. And it's interesting. I don't know if it struck you as we were reading the text. But both of our texts this morning are our New Testament texts. That is our word of exhortation and our New Testament text. Both of them are dealing with the kingdom. Okay, we have Jesus saying, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. That is, you are the king. And over here in the text that Mark just read, we have James and John running up. Well, really the mother saying, hey, could they sit with you on your throne? And James and John saying, yeah, yeah, can we, can we? Um, So they want to, they want to sit on the throne with Jesus. So again, messianic royal theme here. And it's interesting that in both of those texts, we have Jesus doing a miracle of healing the blind. And I, I think that Matthew and Mark know what they're doing, whether or not literally that happened right at that moment. Again, Matthew, we know not all of his texts are uh, chronological. He's not writing it as a chronological narration of Jesus' life. It, it's basically chronological, but he's throwing parables together. He's throwing parables in that help explain the thing that Jesus is doing. So whether or not Jesus healed the blind man at that moment, Matthew put it there. This story that really did happen right there, or Mark, perhaps it did happen just at that same moment. But the healing of these blind men, I think in the, from the author's point of view, from, from uh, Matthew and Mark, is very revealing. He is highlighting the problem that we have, even those who are closest to Jesus, those who are around it, those who are seeing him, those who are walking and talking with him are clearly battling blindness, a blindness of their hearts, a spiritual blindness. And so we have these two healings of these blind, these physically blind men that I think are placed there to quicken our thinking, to give us lenses now by which we're able to look and see in the disciples and then through the disciples to ourselves, that kind of blindness to ask whether or not we're in danger of it. So what are these two stories of blindness? Well, the first one is, you know, relatively simple. Jesus heals a blind man and he's able to see. In the second story, though, we actually have it come in phases. It's a fascinating text, right? It's one when you read it the first time, you're kind of, you kind of scratch your head like, wait a second, Jesus heals him, but kind of only part way, right? He, he heals him and then he says, you know, son, can you see? And he says, well, I, I you know, I'm, I'm looking around. It, I, I, it looks like trees walking around. I, I can't, it's very, very fuzzy. Kind of like some of our eyesight probably, if we take the old spectacles off. Uh, we know, we would look at things and it would just, I can't make it out. It just looks like trees, big figures walking around. Jesus then touches him again, and now there is full healing, and he sees it. And what we have here by Jesus and by the gospel writers, again, is this picture of this progressive seeing that the Lord is bringing in his disciples and through his disciples to us. The blindness of these men represents the blindness of Peter's heart. How blind is Peter? I mean, Jesus says in that very incident, I'm go- they're going to arrest me. This is what's going to happen. But on the third day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. I mean, there's victory on the other side of that. And Peter can't even hear it. He's not only blind, he's deaf. He can't hear what the king is saying. But the king is challenging their idea of a kingdom. 
He's overturning the very thing they were looking forward to. What were they looking forward to? In some ways, they were looking forward to a kingdom of judgment. The God who's going to bring the fire down, right? Even James and John, we call them the sons of thunder because they're the ones who go to Jesus and say, hey, can we, do you want us to bring the thunder and the lightning down and burn these rebellious cities to the ground? I mean, there was within the disciples, even whether it was the rebellious Jews or whether it was the Gentile Romans that were around them and their arrogance against God and his kingdom that wanted to see judgment come that wanted it in their time, that wanted to see the record get set straight. Their God would step up and he would slay the enemies and bring vengeance. And the Psalms promise this. So it's not an unreasonable thing. It's just the timing. The timing was wrong. They couldn't see it. They see something. They see men like trees walking around. They have some clue of what's happening, but they cannot see with clarity yet. And of course, we know that what's going to bring that clarity for them is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the teacher, the advocate, and the counselor. So what kind, of, what kind of kingdom is this king, the king of Matthew 21? What kind of kingdom is he bringing? Well, interesting. We heard it in the parable last week, for those of you who are here for that. He brings a, a kingdom of grace. Not just of grace, but like of surprising grace. Right? He, he gives these guys jobs at the last hour and then pays them full wages. But again, the workers, their hearts are envious. Their hearts are idolatrous. They don't know, even in the parable, they represent the hearts of the apostles. Not so sure we want the Romans receiving grace. We're not so sure we want the Gentiles receiving grace. You can't treat them like we've been treated. We're the, we're the children of Abraham. But you need to understand the kind of kingdom that this king is bringing. He's bringing a kingdom of grace. Judgment to be sure. Judgment to be sure. He's on that cross. It is unmitigated judgment but he bears the transgressions of his people yes there's judgment but for us first mercy is offered jesus bears the judgment takes it so that he can administer grace at his will i can give it to the guy who comes in at the last hour i can give it to the guy who's been here the longest the 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 the, the hebrew of hebrews i can give it to him i can give it to this roman centurion that's the kind of kingdom that this king, when you look and see him riding in on the back of a donkey, not a royal theme. We know this. That theme has been beaten to death in, in so many of sermons on this, right? He comes in riding on a donkey, not on a great war steed. Yeah, but, but what kind of kingdom is appropriate then for this king? It's a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of welcome. You have children singing out Hosanna to God in the highest. And we know in other texts that the leaders of Israel come and tell them, hey, tell them to be quiet. Jesus says, I will not, I will not. And if they do, then the rocks themselves will cry out. Jesus comes with a kingdom of grace as he enters into Jerusalem. And we know, again, the disciples are not quite getting it. So we have these two episodes in, in Mark 8, which is midway in the ministry. So this is not uh, 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 happening at the same time as our text this morning. But the other is that James and John, as they're making their way to Jerusalem, they kind of scurry up to Jesus and ask, as their mother had asked, could we sit at your right hand and your left hand? We anticipate that this is the royal moment. We anticipate that you are going to a throne. And we would like to be there. We'd like to, we'd like to have the seats of honor at your right hand and at your left hand. 
Now, Jesus just healed this blind man. And now we're going to see the blindness manifest itself here. He asked them interesting questions. Do you remember them as Mark was reading it? He says, let me ask you a question, guys, sons of thunder. You guys who think you see everything so clearly, you guys who are just ready to go and bring the kingdom down. Are you prepared to sit on the throne I'm going to sit on? Are you prepared, he asked, to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And they say yes. Because, again, in their blindness, all they can see is trees moving around. They have some sense of what's coming. They have sense of the victory. They have sense of the kingdom and the salvation and the power. But they do not see clearly. They do not know what they're asking for. For the king of this kingdom is a king like no other. This is a king who's going to wear a crown, but it will be a crown of woven thorns jammed onto his head. This is a king who will wear robes of purple, but they will be hung on him in mockery. This will be a king who holds a scepter, but it's given to him in mockery, right? This little palm branch or whatever, a hyssop branch, and then they start beating him with it. This is a king who, while he is being hailed as king, is being whipped and whipped and whipped. This is a king who, while he's enthroned and has all the world see placarded above his head, king of the Jews in the three languages of Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. I mean, Pontius Pilate holds nothing back. He wants it to be seen who this guy claims to be. Of course, preaching the gospel out of false ambition, as Paul says about those in Philippians who preach the gospel out of bad motives, but nonetheless preach the gospel. Pontius Pilate is saying much more than he knows. And so Jesus is raised on the on the uh, ascended, if you will, to his throne, but his throne is a wooden cross. And there above his head, it is placarded for all the world to see Jesus, King of the Jews. But the disciples couldn't see that. They, they, they misunderstood the kingdom. And again, Peter, we know, shared the same blindness. Yes, you are the Christ. He can see. He can see trees moving around. He can see what a lot of people can't see. Remember, Jesus says to him, well done, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. That is sight. You see something. You recognize something in me. You recognize that I'm a king. But you do not see clearly. Because I'm the kind of king that's going to come riding in on a donkey. I'm the kind of king who's going to be arrested and beaten for the sins of his people. I'm the king who is going to lay down his own life. I am the king who is going to manifest grace and say, even while they are piercing me, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the kind of king I am. I'm a king unlike any other king. And we need the grace of God to see it. It's interesting at the end of the text that Mark read, Jesus returns, Matthew returns again to the same lines that we looked at in the past, the, the chapter right before or the, the passage right before about the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And then we even went back to the story of the rich young ruler. And in all of those, Jesus is repeating and repeating and repeating the kind of kingdom that he is leading. And what does he say? Brothers, if you want to be part of this, then the first must be last. Then the master must be servant of all. He said that after the rich young ruler, he said that after the parable, and now he says it here after this business with James and John. 
This is the kind of kingdom that you and I, brothers and sisters, are part of. This is the kind of king that we follow. So what does that mean for us? Again, my dad had Mark 8.35 kind of pasted on the, you know, it was not paste, it was painted on a, a nice wooden sign. As you went out in, said, welcome to Chapel Field. But on the way out, just at Mark 8.35, my dad just kept it pretty stark and simple. And I hope thought-provoking. Maybe somebody said, hey, what, what's, what's Mark 8.35 say? And maybe it caused some to read it. But if any man seeks to save his life, he will lose it. See, James and John, if, if it's about wanting to sit at the king's table, if that's if all you're about, it's not being with the king, it's about kind of just sharing in the glory straight on, just getting to glory, then you don't understand the way this glorious king gets his glory. This king gets his glory by emptying himself. By enduring the shame, by becoming a slave. I mean, even before we know, and, and on Monday Thursday, which I hope you'll take time to reflect on Monday Thursday, the Last Supper, and the the foot washing, so beautifully. And again, once again, Peter couldn't understand it, but the king does something unbelievable in bowing down and taking the form of a slave, and washing the feet of his disciples. This just made no sense. Because again, what kind of king is it? What kind of king says, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. That here's how you should think about my work. Here's how you should think about my body. It's broken so that you can live off of it. I'm going to empty myself, break myself open so that streams of living water will pour out so that by that you can drink. I'm going to allow my flesh to be broken so that you can eat. This is the kind of king. And the kind of kingdom that Jesus Christ brings and establishes. And oh, may we join in the praises and the cries and the hosannas. But may we do it with clear vision. May we not be those who look at Christ and we see trees walking around. We have some idea of victory. We have some idea of messianic authority. We have some idea of heaven of going to heaven when we die. We have some idea of Jesus dying for our sins, but it's kind of like trees walking around. We haven't thought clearly through the implications of what it means to follow such a king. What are the implications of following such a king? Well, the apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped or kind of with his claws held on to while they're trying to take it away from him, but rather emptied himself of his glory, not of his attributes, but of his glory, of his position, of his title, of his rights. Emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming obedient, even obedient to the point of the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, Jesus got the victory. Jesus is seated in radiant glory. We've, we've seen the stories in Revelation. Oh, the radiant glory is true. They weren't wrong about that. It's just that their timing was wrong. They didn't understand the path, the trajectory of the glory. 
that the glory needed to descend in order to ascend. That the king needed to empty in order to be filled. The king needed to pour out in order to receive the crown, the prize, and the glory. And Paul says to us on this Palm Sunday, brothers and sisters, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. Not because we need to do what Jesus did so we can earn what Jesus earned. No, but because that's the path that our Savior has cut for us. He is the trailblazer. He is the one who cuts the path through the impenetrable woods so that we in him now may follow. But where do we follow? We follow on the road of self-giving. Pick up your cross, Jesus said. Deny yourself. And what? Follow me. It's not earning anything. It's not gaining anything by merit. That's just, this is the path to life. The path of Christ, the way. And it's a path of self-emptying. Come and follow me. For if you lose your life, if you pour it out, if you empty yourself, you will find life. But if you grasp for it now, if you want to be like Peter, And get the glory without the suffering. Which, let's face it, this is really, frankly, what we all kind of want. If we seek to do that, we will lose it. If any man seeks to save his life, he will lose it. But if any man loses his life for my sake and the gospels, he will save it. And, of course, it doesn't mean he will save it. It just means it will be saved. He will find life in giving himself over to death, self-denial. So I challenge you this morning on this, on this Palm Sunday, what does that mean for you? What does it mean for you when you look at your life? Can you say, yes, this path, the path of this king, this path of, of <laughs> single-minded focus on, that, on the work that the king has given to me, This eye for losing my life and giving it away, not clinging tightly to it, whether it's physical health or whether it's our finances or whether it's our reputations or, you know, all the things you and I tend to cling to. Are we holding on? And what would it mean to pour that out before the foot of the cross, to pick up our cross and then to walk in the path that he has trained for us? Brothers and sisters, that is the path of life. Be assured of it. In Isaiah 53, in that Old Testament text, which again, I know we're all familiar with, what is it saying there? All this, you know, he was bruised for our transgressions. All this, again, the path that he took was one of of stripes and being smitten, stricken and afflicted and all these things, you know. But what it says, he will see his suffering and be satisfied. Our king does not regret. Our king looks at the suffering that he endured and he is satisfied because of the fruit that it bore. And so may we as followers of this unique and unusual king, this triumphant though lowly king, may we walk in his path with supreme confidence that indeed whatever we give up, remember Peter, a couple of passages before this, Lord, we've given up everything for you. And Jesus said, no one given up anything for me that they will not receive back a hundredfold. You will see your suffering and you will be satisfied because it is taken up in me. 
but we must follow this king through the hard road of pandemics, the hard road of the Christian life, the hard road of suffering, the hard road of self-denial. We must follow our king wherever he goes. That alone is the path of life. Jesus Christ is a king like any other. Praise be to God. May we follow him on his path to glory. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you so love the world that you gave your only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, we have confessed over the past couple of weeks, in fact, that we are by nature idol factories. And so once again, we come and acknowledge it. Lord, we want to hop, skip, and jump over the picking up the cross part. We want to hop, skip, and jump over the uh, descent, the humiliation, the suffering, the losing one's life. And Father, just be taken up to glory. But that is not the path that you have called us to walk on. But rather, you have given us a king that has blazed a path through the deepest suffering even through death itself, so that nothing now in him can stop us. All paths in him lead to life. And so we pray that you would guard us. For Father, we know that the way is difficult and the gate narrow, and few are they who find it. So we pray that you would not allow us to be distracted by the things on our right or the things on the left, for we know they will woo us and they will tempt us. But may we fix our eyes on Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, and in him enjoy the victory and the crown and the glory and eternity in praise with him. Keep us faithful in that we ask in his name. Amen.